Okay, listen, uh, some good news for our friends in the United Kingdom. Take a look at this short spot. We, uh, it's on Kindle now, thanks to Seth and his uh, ingenuity on getting our books on Kindle and these different um, delivery systems, but it's really important for the people in the UK and people overseas because it cuts down on shipping books over there, which is very expensive. And so you can just go on there now and get it online and, uh, and understand that. We're gonna get right into it, so let me, uh, let's begin with a prayer. God, we uh, seek you and love you and need you. We pray as we continue to talk both sides of the argument on Calvinism that you'll Send your spirit and open up uh, the uh, eyes of the heart, as our sister Josephine just said. The people who are seeking for truth, we pray that you will do this for us, Lord, and, and uh, bless those people who are struggling. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, we're uh, in the middle of talking about Calvinism, the tulip, the T, the U. Tonight is the L. We're going to start with Brother Matt Slick, and he's going to give, uh, we recorded Matt, and then uh, had some trouble with my recording, so I'm going to reiterate what I said. I haven't watched what Matt said, so this isn't a response to him. But we're going to watch Matt first and hear what he has to say about the limited atonement part of Calvinism, and then come back and I'll do my shtick, and then we'll open up the phone lines. I want to say something. Matt is a brother in Christ. He uh, is a Calvinist, which I completely reject. But, you know, I reject other things that brothers and sisters believe, and you reject stuff I believe, and you might be a Calvinist or an Arminianist or a Reconciliationist. There's a lot of, you know, it's really by the love that we're going to be known, and so we hope that that will abide. And so uh, show Matt Slick respect. Here he is. All right, so now what I could do is present the L in TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, limited atonement. And... This is one of my favorite topics because to me it makes so much sense. Now, Christians know that people go to hell. You can go to Mark 3.29, you can go to Matthew 25.46, Revelation 14.11. We know that people go to hell. They can't go to hell if they have no sin. They can't go to hell and be punished, generic punishment, hell. They can't go to hell if there is no sin debt given to them. Now, that's an important concept. So let me go into what limited atonement is. I'm going to flesh this out, hopefully. Limited atonement is, in the Reformed perspective, 
the teaching that Jesus only bore the sin and paid for the sin of the elect, that he did not pay for the sin of everybody who ever lived. That's the teaching. So what Reformed people do is limit the scope. What the non-Reformed people do is limit the power. Both believe in a limited atonement. The non-reformed will say, no, he died for everybody, he bore everybody's sins, and it's just up to the individual and his wisdom and his ability to pick God. And if they accept that gift, well, then it's applied to them. So it's a conditional kind of atoning work. So the blood of Christ is powerful, but not so powerful that for all for whom it's atoned, or for all for whom the blood is shed, that doesn't mean they automatically are saved, that their sins are all automatically removed. It just means, well, it's potential. So they limit the power of the blood of Christ. Where we Calvinists say, no, the, the, uh, the blood of Christ is so strong, is so powerful, that for all who Jesus bore the sins of them, they are going to heaven, period. So we have a limited view on the scope of the, the uh, atoning work. So let me get into this a little bit. I'm going to make a case here, hopefully, by going through Scripture. First of all, I want you to understand, sin is a legal problem. 1 John 3, 4, God says, that sin is lawlessness. It's breaking the law of God. Now, sin is not only a legal problem. It separates us from God, Isaiah 59.2, causes us to die, Ezekiel 18.4, the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. Sin has an effect on the mind, a noetic effect of sin, and we have various things. We die, etc. But it is a legal problem. Because we break the law of God, we have a legal problem, we need a legal solution. So Jesus, God in flesh, John 1, 1 and verse 14, Colossians 2, 9, Jesus is God in flesh. He became one of us by the incarnation, being made Lord than the angels, Hebrews 2, 9, and made under the law, Galatians 4, 4. Very important. He was made under the law, Galatians 4, 4 says, under that law. He had to be circumcised, he had to go to... Passover, he had to do various laws in the Old Testament that were obligated for men and women to do and perform because he was made under that law. Now we know that Jesus never sinned. You can go to 1 Peter 2.22. He never sinned. He never broke the law of God. This means that his, we call this his active obedience. He actively was obedient to every single aspect of that Old Testament law and never broke any law, any way, any shape, any how, any time. He is sinless. He is perfect. Now remember, sin is breaking the law of God, 1 John 3, 4, and we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3, 23. All of us have sinned. All of us are worthy of damnation. We are by nature children of wrath, Ephesians 2, 3. So we have this legal problem, again, we need the legal solution, and the legal solution is found in the person of Jesus who's made under the law. Now what's interesting is that 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sin in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his stripes we are healed. So he bore our sin in his body. Sin is a legal debt. Now, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, and Luke 11.4, both of these accounts, what we have here is our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, etc. Forgive us our debts, is what Jesus says in Matthew 6. And in Luke eleven four, 4, he says, forgive us our sins. Debt is ophilema, and sin is hermartia in the Greek. Debt, legal debt. Forgive us our debts, is what he says in one place, and forgive us our sins in another. Jesus equates sin with legal debt. 
Jesus equates sin with legal debt. So does Paul. We'll get to that. Now understand this. It's a very important concept. Sin is a legal debt. Because we break the law, there's a legal consequence. Now I've got a question. Can legal debts be transferred? And yes, they can. So if I have a friend and I write a check for $100 and I hand it to him and he puts it in his bank account, $100 is now imputed to him. It's a theological term, to impute, to reckon to another's account legally. Sin is a legal problem. Jesus was made under the law. He fulfilled the law. He never sinned. Our sin was born in his body. How do you bear sin? That's what it says. 1 Peter 2.24, he bore our sin. Simple. Sin is a legal problem. It's a debt. Ophilema. Forgive us our sins. Forgive us our debts. Our debts were legally transferred to Christ. Legally transferred to Christ. They were imputed to him. That's 1 Peter 2.24. Now, what Jesus said on the cross in John 19.30 was, it is finished. He's on the cross. He's bearing our sins. And he's going to die because the wages of sin is death, as Romans 6, 23, he's got to die. So he became sin on our behalf, Romans uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He became sin. And what he did there on that cross is say, it is finished. What's really interesting about that word in the Greek, it's a single Greek word, tetelestai. That word tetelestai, which is translated into the English, it is finished. The word tetelestai has been found on the bottom of ancient tax receipts, handwritten in, tetelestai, saying a legal debt has been paid in full. A legal debt's paid in full. Jesus paid the debt in full. Now, another verse is really interesting is Colossians 2.14. Colossians 2.14 says this, talking about Jesus, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees, which was hostile to us, he took it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Let me say this again. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees, which was hostile to us, he took it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. He took it out of the way on the cross. The certificate of debt, this is the NASB I quoted, the certificate of debt in the Greek is the single word in Greek, Kerographon, and I have to show off here. That's a hopox legomena. That's a big fancy term for it's a word that occurs only once in a body of text. It only occurs right there in the entire Bible. Kerographon, a handwritten legal debt, a, a legal handwritten IOU of legal indebtedness that is canceled by Jesus on the cross. It cannot be canceled for everybody. Let me illustrate why. I call this coma man. Coma man. Coma man is on his way to the bank to pay his mortgage. He's got a mortgage, let's say $100,000, and he's going to pay $1,000 uh, this month. On his way to the bank, he gets in a bad car accident, and he ends up in a hospital for a month in a coma. While he is in that coma, a philanthropist hears about his problem, has mercy on him, has compassion on him, and goes to the bank talks to the bank manager and writes a check for $100,000 and pays off this man's debt. Now, question, is his debt canceled? Yes. That's what Colossians 2.14 says, having canceled the certificate of debt. Canceled. Okay? Canceled. Is it existing anymore? No. Can the man be held accountable for a debt that doesn't exist anymore? No. If he did, that would be immoral. That would be illegal. That would be wrong. Coma man wakes up, miraculous recovery. He realizes he hasn't paid his debt. He goes to the bank, miraculous recovery. Hey, I was in a coma for a month. Here's my check. The teller says, oh, oh hey, you know what? Your debt's been paid. 
He said, well, I don't like that. Well, too bad. Well, I want you to take my payment. We can't. The debt doesn't exist anymore. If the bank were to claim that debt, were to say, look, we'll take the payment, that would be wrong. If the debt has been canceled for everybody who ever lived, John 3, 16, we'll get to that. If it's been canceled for everybody who ever lived, then nobody can go to hell ever because that would mean the debt had been canceled and you can't go to hell and be punished for a debt that has no existence. They would have to go straight to heaven upon their death, period. Because you cannot be held responsible for a debt that doesn't exist. People say, well, it's a gift. doesn't say it's a gift. The gift is eternal life. But the debt has been canceled. Is the blood of Christ sufficient to cleanse us of all? Certainly it is. But did he legally bear the sins of everybody? No. He only bore the sin of those who died with him, Romans 6, 6. We have been crucified with Christ. Only those who are the elect, who are unconditionally called, predestined to salvation, are the ones whom Jesus bore the sins of and canceled the debt, Colossians 2.14, and removed the enmity between God and man, Ephesians 2.15. Now some say, but Matt, 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 God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believed in Him would have everlasting life. He loved the world. I agree He loves the world. What does it mean to a Jew? So I ask people this question. Who was Jesus sent to? Was he sent to the world? No. He says in Matthew 15, 24, he was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Covenant, covenant is important. A covenant is a pact or an agreement between two or more parties. The Messiah was sent covenantally to Israel, not to the world, not to the Egyptians, not to the Assyrians. He was sent covenantally. Now, hear what I'm saying. Covenantally, he was sent only to Israel. Israel broke the covenant, so we were then grafted in, Romans 8. We were then adopted, Romans 8. We were then made partakers of this. Now, this is prophesied in Genesis 12, 3, and which, is, which is spoken of by Paul in Galatians 3, 8. Do some homework there. But the thing is that covenantally, Jesus was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel because of Matthew 15, 24. That's exactly what Jesus says. He was not sent to the world. What's a Jew thinking? Jews are walking down the road talking to each other. Hey, the Messiah is coming. Yes, he's coming for us. He's coming for the people of Israel. Right. And it's, well, did you hear what Bob says? What? He's coming for Egypt. What? Does he not know the scriptures? The Messiah is coming for Israel. So when the Jew says he came for the whole world, it means all the nations, all the groups, and out of all the nations and out of all the world are the elect, whom Jesus bore the sins of, legally having them imputed to him on that cross. He died, and those elect are the ones who are redeemed. Otherwise, if you have the redemptive work of Christ being such that everybody's sins were imputed to Christ, and he paid the price for everybody's sins, then the sin debt of everybody is canceled, because that's what the Bible says in Colossians 2.14 having canceled out the certificate of debt. If it's canceled, it doesn't exist anymore. If it doesn't exist anymore, you cannot be held responsible for it. And it was canceled at the cross, not when you believe. Colossians 2.14, having canceled out the certificate of debt, having nailed it to the cross, that's when it was canceled. This is the sovereign plan and will of God. It was not canceled when you just apply it to yourself by the wisdom of your own faith and ability. It doesn't become canceled when you believe. It's canceled at the cross because that's what Colossians 2.14 simply declares is the case. And if you don't like that, go to the store, get a little razor blade or a little marker, go to Colossians 2.14 and just get rid of it. 
You just say, you don't need that. Go to John 19.30. He paid it right there and said, it is finished. To tell us die, legal debt paid in full. Get rid of it. A legal debt paid in full cannot be held against you. If Jesus bore the sin of everybody who ever lived, then everybody who ever lived must go to heaven. They cannot be punished ever for a sin that does not exist. But God, in His sovereign wisdom from all eternity, has called His people to Himself. Before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5, He predestined us. He chose us. And Jesus, who was sent by the Father in the blood of the eternal covenant spoken of in Hebrews 13, 20, where Jesus in John 6 said, I came to do the will of the Father who sent me, and all that He has given me will lose none. We'll get into that later. The ones given to the Son to redeem, Jesus did that exact thing. There's no mistakes with God. There's no abortions in heaven with God. There's no debt canceled, and then it's uncanceled with God. You can't be saved and then not saved because that would mean all your sins were not forgiven when you were saved. You can't have that happen. God doesn't sit up there in heaven and roll dice and sit there and say, what's going to happen? I'll look in the future. I'm going to see what's going to happen. Your view of God is small. Then your view of salvation, predestination, and election will also be small. God, the sovereign king of the universe, declares what will be, and he works all things after the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11. He unconditionally elects. He chooses the people he wants. He redeems the ones that he does. And he does that in a loving way. People say, well, that's not loving. Yes, it is. Because the simple fact is this, that God has no obligation to love us, but he does because of what's in him. He loves us because of how good he is. He loves us because of his nature, not because of our goodness. He redeems us because of his goodness, not because of ours. He elects us because of what's in him, not because of what's in us. And he redeems those and he pays for those whom he's called to himself and guarantees the cancellation of that sin debt so that we can, without worry, without fear, enjoy forever with God in heaven, without having to ever worry about falling from his incredible grace because of our incompetence or our sin or our whatever. God does not leave our salvation up to us and the whim of sinful creatures, but he takes it upon himself, the author and the finisher of our faith. He's the one who's the author of our salvation. He's the one in whom we lean, and he's the one in whom I trust completely for everything because he's my Savior who's unconditionally called me and who has definitely, definitely atoned for my sins. I'm eternally secure in him. We'll get to that later. But I praise my Lord Jesus Christ for the work that he did in the cross where he canceled my debt of sin on that cross and then infallibly brought me into the faith by granting that I believe, Philippians 1, 29, <laughs> and working faith in me, John 6, 28, 29. And again, I'm going to say to this, amen and amen. Thank you. All right. Thank you, uh, Matt, for that. I just want to say that I agree with everything Matt said except that what Christ did was limited. I think he made great sense with canceling out the debt. I think it makes great sense that if a debt's been canceled out, then you can't be punished for that sin. And I think sin's been wiped away. But I want to start by saying, I think scripture plainly teaches that the scope is not limited, nor is the power of Christ's atonement limited. And that's the question. The point being de debated tonight 
is, did Jesus atone for the sins only of those who the Calvinists would say were elected, or did he atone for the sin of the whole world? Now, Scripture plainly talks about Jesus and his, those who are his, his sheep in John 10, his church in Ephesians 5, his people in Matthew 1, his elect in Romans 8, his own in John 17. We know that there are those who are his. These verses certainly have their application and are true, but to use them as a proof text that he paid only for the sins of the elect is kind of akin to saying Walt Disney built Disneyland for his children, which he did, and only for his children, which obviously is not true. You see, and so there is an elect, and there are those who are his, and there is his church. The question is, did Christ suffer for those outside of those who are his sheep? And the Calvinist does make an outstanding point that we have to consider in the church. Why would God have his son suffer for sins of those he is never going to elect. Why would God do that? Brother Slick's take takes the position that if a ransom has been paid, the debt has been stamped paid in full, then it has been paid in full, and if paid in full, the whole world then would have to benefit from Christ's redemptive work. And to all I can say to that is exactly, exactly. The whole world does benefit by Christ's redemptive work. They just don't know it yet. Or they haven't come to believe it yet. Now, I am not saving all are saved. Matt spoke about, listen, if the debt has been paid, nobody can suffer in hell or in the lake of fire for sins if the debt has been paid, stamped, paid in full. But what he isn't, what he's not, what he's doing is he's not looking at the fact that Christians have two commandments that we're to follow, and only two. 1 John 3, 22, 23 tells us what those commandments are, to believe and to love. We do not go to hell for our carnal sins, for banging the neighbor's wife, getting drunk, uh, lusting, stealing, homosexuality. That was paid for. All of the stuff, all of it was paid for by Christ for all people. The reason people go to hell after this life is not for those. It has been taken care of universally. They go because they break the two commandments that Jesus left us with. Believe on him and love the new commandment. Love. Seth, you got to turn that off. It's driving me nuts. Okay? So he says that Christ paid for all sin, but we know that it is. I mean, James says, listen, if you know it's to do good and you don't do it, that is sin. So we know sin can exist in the Christian's life but what, or in a person's life now since Christ is paid for. But what sin is it? Failing to believe, failing to love, okay? So this thinking of the Calvinists, if Jesus paid for all sin, it automatically says all for whom the payment was made 
would be redeemed somehow, I'm not sure that would hold water. Uh, in other words, universal atonement is rejected by the Calvinists because Jesus would be defeated because he went at, the way they would see it is he saved everybody, but not everybody's redeemed. And so therefore, his, his work was kind of a mockery to him. And God would be unfair in sending people to hell for sins that they all paid for. In order to survive in Scripture and to read through, the Calvinist has to take Scripture and take three words and add some words to them. Every time you read all, every time you read the world, and every time you read whosoever in Scripture, the Calvinist has to add of the elect. So when you read, he is the savior of all, the Calvinist adds, of the elect. He's the savior of the world, of the elect. He's the savior of whosoever, of the elect. It's always of the elect when a Calvinist reads scripture. Now that's not what scripture says. So again, how do Calvinists interpret the Bible when it says Christ is the savior of all men and it does say that? They say he's the savior of all men who have been elected. They read that into the text, but that's not what the text says. World then refers again to the world of the elect, etc. So we can see from this that exceptions and additions have to be made to Scripture by a Calvinist in order for them to say Scripture upholds this. You notice that Matt used an articulation that is legal, debt being erased, therefore no one can. It's very rational, it's very logical. You notice he didn't quote a lot of scriptures uh, regarding this because there's too many that suggest he is the savior of the world. He did suffer for the sins of the entire world. There are certain scripture passages that are very difficult for anyone who's a Calvinist to fix. Let me, let me share them with you. Uh, John 1.29, John the Baptist says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's the sins of the cosmos, not the sins of the area. Ironically, the founder of Calvinism, John Calvin, said this about this passage. Here's the quote. He, John the Beloved, uses the word sin in the singular number for any kind of iniquity, as if he had said that every kind of unrighteousness which alienates men from God is taken away by Christ. Now listen. And when he says the sin of the world, he extends this favor indiscriminately to the whole human race. That's from the founder of Calvinism. All, the all-familiar John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Every Greek lexicon are unanimous in that the world means humankind, not the world of the elect. Every single one says he so loved the world. Therefore, we can just tacitly agree that his, his offering had to have been for the world. Regarding this verse, John Calvin said, God is unwilling that we should be overwhelmed with everlasting destruction because he has appointed his son to be the salvation of the world. Calvin also said, the word world is again repeated that no man may think himself wholly excluded if he only keeps the road of faith. We can see from quotes like this that modern day Calvinism and its ivory tower intellectualism 
has strayed from Calvin's Calvinism. That Calvin didn't really even support limited atonement himself, but the modern day scholars have embraced this notion to make it really seem like a seamless body of theology. It's similar to Mormonism. Mormonism today isn't Joseph Smith's and Brigham Young's Mormonism. Well, the Calvinists today aren't the same as the Calvins uh, of, of the, uh, that at, from at the beginning. So many passages indicate that the gospel is to be universally proclaimed. And the, it, this supports universal atonement. In John 8, 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Again, cosmos. Not the light of only the elect and the rest of remaining in darkness, but he's the light of the whole world. Uh, Romans 5, 6 says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. It doesn't make much sense to read this as saying Christ died for the ungodly of the elect. Okay? Romans 5, 18 says, consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, it's talking about Adam, so also the result of one act, the righteousness was justification that brings life for all men, not all men of the elect. So we see that Adam's sin brought the sin nature upon all of us. So Christ's nature, it says here, brings justification to life for all men. It's amazing. First, 2 Corinthians 5.14, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. 1 Timothy 2.3.4, This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2, 5, 6, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. 1 Timothy 4, 10, We have put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all men, listen, especially those who believe. All men, especially those who believe. That scripture really throws it down saying he gave that salvation, that blood for all men, especially for those who are of his body, of his church, his elect, his sheep who follow him. But he gave it especially for them, but he gave it to all others. I don't know how you can be a Calvinist and justify these. Uh, Titus 2.11 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, not just the elect. Hebrews 2, 9, we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste the death for everyone. Listen to 2 Peter 3, 9 really closely. Ready? The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That in the Greek is not his permissive will. That's his expressed will. He wants everybody, everybody. But the coup de grace, the death blow to the Calvinist. This is a death blow to limited atonement. You ready? 1 John 2, 2. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, 
but also for the sins of the whole world. I don't know how Calvinism has been able to exist in the presence of passages like this. Did you note that it says, leave that scripture up there, Merle, if you would, our sins and not only ours. So John is talking to believers there. He is, this, uh, he is atoning sacrifice for our sins, believers, and not only ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. You can't throw this away with logic and with a, a, a superstructure of intellectualism and forming a methodology to approach God through a system. You can't do it. Um, just a natural reading of that verse without imposing theological presuppositions into it shows us that the atonement was for all. Then one more thing. If one point of Calvinism is proven faulty, the whole superstructure falls. If God has totally depraved people that he elects and only them, then the atonement has to be limited. If limited atonement is proved incorrect or perseverance of the saints is proven incorrect, then the whole system falls. There's no such thing as 4.3.2 point or one point Calvinism. That's ridiculous. That's like saying, well, I don't know what it's like saying. Okay, Isaiah 53.6 says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Okay? So now listen. This verse does not make sense unless we read it to say that the same all that went astray, we all have gone astray, that's what all Calvinists will preach that, is the same all for whom the Lord died. All in the first line is the all of the second line, and there it says, the, the Lord laid upon the iniquity of us all. All have gone astray. That's not just talking about the elect. A guy named Miller uh, Erickson put it this way. This passage, speaking of Isaiah 53, 6, is especially powerful from a logical standpoint. It is clear that the extent of sin is universal. It is specified that every one of us has sinned. It should also be noticed that the extent of what will be laid on the suffering servant exactly parallels the extent of sin. It is difficult to read this passage and not conclude that just as everyone sins, everyone is also atoned for. 2 Peter 2.1, it seems Christ even paid the price of redemption for teachers who deny him. Ready for this one? Peter says, but there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them. Who bought them. Bringing swift destruction on themselves. This has nothing to do with the elect. We're talking about guys who are teaching false doctrine and heresies and trying to bring people down and they're doing it on purpose. And he says, they have denied the Lord who bought them. Calvinists would say, well, none of the elect would ever be doing this, teaching these damnable heresies and denying the sovereign Lord who bought them exactly. This passage will be used again when we talk about once saved, always saved. On, in Acts 17.30, Paul on Mars Hill said, In the past God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He commands all people everywhere to repent. I'm going to wrap this up. All people everywhere to repent, not just the elect. Let me, let me ask you something. If Christ died only for the elect, how can 
they ought, the offer of salvation be made to people without some sort of insincerity or artificiality or dishonesty being involved. Is it not improper to offer salvation to everyone if in fact Christ did not die to save everyone? What I mean by that is, how could we ever say to somebody, Jesus died for you? We can't. You can't share the gospel message. You can't say even to people in the church, Jesus died for you. Because if it's a limited atonement, we don't know who he died for. And so it completely affects sharing the good news with people. You have to, you can't say that to people. You can say, Jesus died for the sins of the elect. That's what you say. And then the person stands there and says, well, I wonder if I'm part of that party, you know? And then it's just a quagmire. You see, all these systems always produce an artificiality in God. They always have him doing something. In Mormonism, it was God said, hey, don't eat of the, tree, uh, free, the, the fruit of the tree uh, of knowledge of good and evil. Oh, please eat it. Please eat it. Please. There's trickery involved with God with these systems. Well, there's trickery with this. We're supposed to share the good news, but we're sharing it to people, and we tell them Christ died for them, but we don't know that he really did. Under the teaching of limited atonement, no Christian has the right to tell another person Jesus died for them. We may be wrong. So, there's theological presuppositions that are read into every one of these um, arguments. You have to read into it that it was only the elect because God only picked the elect because we were totally depraved. And, that, and, and all of these things, and you have to see it in that way in order to read these passages and embrace them. Unlimited atonement has been held by a majority of scholars since uh, the church, early church history. All the reformers of the, of the Christian faith, if you like that kind of thing, they held to universal atonement. Every one of them except for, uh, uh, well, he wasn't a reformer, but early church fathers, probably Augustine, was the only one who didn't hold to it. And that's one of the reasons why it comes up in Calvinism. Um, early church father, Clement of Alexandria, Eusebius, Athanasius, Cyril of Jer Jerusalem, Gregory, Basil, Ambrose, all taught universal atonement. If that's important to you, it's not important to me. So two quick points to reiterate. We'll open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413. 801-590-8413. If one point of Calvinism fails, it all fails. If you can find passages at all that support a limited, I mean, a, lim a universal atonement, then like I think we've shown here, I think we can see there's something wrong in the picture. It's not that all of Calvinism's wrong, but this is, is significant. Secondly, and this is very, very, very important, when it comes to Jesus' atoning work, there's only two options. Using Matt and his very his great use of scripture, using his logic, just listen to this. It, his atonement was either limited and God only atoned for the elect and therefore they are saved and no others, or the other option can only be that it was universal and therefore the debt was paid for all and all will in some respect or another be reconciled to God by and through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Arminianism that says he suffered for the sins of the world, but not all will come to him, is a fail. 
and, and, and for the reasons that Matt articulated. The debt has either been paid in full and effectively for all or for only for some. Think about the implications of this as we continue on. All right. Phone lines, do we have a, are we going to show a spot? Showing a spot, is Brother Slick on? All right, we have Matt Slick waiting for us. Check the spot out, he'll come back, we'll take your calls and questions. photo booth so I don't forget it for you So is Matt saying that God created evil people that are not elected for his will and pleasure? If so, where is the justice and grace for God for the innocent?
it's hard to understand what the question is. Sorry. Sorry. Um, if you, if he went out a long time. Well, you read it, it was a long read, so I don't know what the exact question was. I'll put it, we'll, we'll put it, let's go to the phone lines. I think that works better. We're going to Jarrett in New Orleans. Jarrett, you're on Heart of the Matter. I guess I have a question for Matt. Is he with you? He's, uh, he's Skyping. Can you hear him, Matt? Yeah. Barely. Okay. Uh, my question is about in Romans 5 when Paul is talking about how all are in Adam and that the free gift has come upon all men, specifically in verse 18, it says, Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men, condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. My question is, is the, the all that the condemnation came upon, is that every single human being? And if so, how would the all that the free gift came upon not be every single human being. Correct. You're probably out of the King James. The words the free gift came, they're not in the Greek. It's not what it is saying there. That's an interpolation by translators who apparently don't understand what the text is really saying and don't want to because of what it actually says. And what it actually says in there are two sentences with a conjunction. It says um, through one transgression, Hello? Hello? can you hear me? Can you hear me? Right now, Matt, I think we're better. Okay, can you hear me? Can you hear me? I can hear you. All right, can they hear me? Caller, can you hear Matt? No, uh, I couldn't hear anything for a minute. I can hear you now, though. Okay. This well, test, 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 about five test. Seconds, Matt. Test, test, testing, testing, testing. All right. Romans 5.18. Yep. Well, Jim, this will be for the audience. Matt is responding to you. The audience can hear it. Uh, you can't hear it over your phone, but go ahead, Matt. I'm, uh, let's just say, exceptionally familiar with that exact verse, Romans 5.18. In the Greek, what it actually says is, uh, through one transgression, condemnation to all men so also through an act of righteousness justification of life to all men there's no verb there the king james he quoted the free gift came the free gift came they're not in the greek um i have an article written on it on my website calvinistcorner.com all you got to do is go to the article um all men saved and it goes through that in the greek and explains what's going on what's happening there is adam represented some or everybody jesus represented his people it has to do with federal headship. I'm not trying to snow people with a bunch of theological terms, but the fact is, this is what the Bible teaches. It teaches that Christ represented individuals and uh, Adam represented everybody. Because it says, um, it says uh, through one transgression, and that's why the NASB says, there resulted condemnation to all men. So also through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. Now, the universalists like to use that verse in particular, and, I, and trust me, I, I can go to town for an hour on this. But what it's saying there, without you having studied it or no, 
is a doctrine called federal headship. Go to my website and look it up. Federal headship. The male represents the descendants. Adam represented everybody. Jesus only represented his people. Because Jesus said he came only to save, or came to save, those whom the Father had given him. That's John 6. And he says he doesn't pray for everybody. He only prays for the ones that the Father's given him. That's in John 17, 9 and 20. So he doesn't pray for everybody. He's only praying for the ones given to him. So the ones who are given to him are the second all. Now you may think I'm joking. You may think I'm off. But if you read Romans 5, 16, 17, 18, and 19, you'll see that Paul the Apostle does two weird things. He says, the many, twice, and the many means two different things, and all means two different things. And just look, it's complicated. I got an article on it. I can't go through it too much right here, but it's on uh, my Calvinist Corner website called All Men Saved Article. Thank you, Jared, so much for calling in. God bless you. Matt, using the same question that Jared had for his passage, how do you do 1 John 2, 2? He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. We look at it contextually, because the Jews understood that the Messiah was coming only for the nation of Israel. Jesus said in Matthew 15, 24, he said that he was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Notice what he says. Israel. Israel is the nation. Is, he was sent. That's, you can go to Matthew 15, 24 and well, read it. Wait, 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 was, wait, 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 John. This is the, I was telling somebody, this is one of the difficulties of having these kinds of discussions when scripture is cited scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture because we're not able to look at context either but well, but but Matt John was he writing to the Jews here can I, I but uh, can I answer the question though well, but contextually was John writing to the Jews here he was writing to all kinds of people to okay the so it, he was said he he was writing to believers wasn't he wouldn't you okay. agree with that a propitiation is a sacrifice that return that removes the wrath of God that's what a propitiation is from the Greek holosmos. If you want to go to 1 John 2, 2 and say he's a propitiation for our sins, not only for ours, but the sins of the whole world, then automatically, by definition, every single sin of every single person is automatically removed. And nobody can I go agree. to hell and suffer at all. What's the, the problem? Poor, because universalism is not true. I'm not, this is not universalism. Because it can't be that everybody is saved if every single individual is propitiated. Okay. Wait, 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 wait. Is that the Bible interprets the Bible? Wait, 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 Jesus. wait. Just slow, slow down, but Matt. I We're just, to the answer. Well, your answers are not just staying on the thing. Let's just stay on this verse for a second. I'm trying to. Okay. There's two ways to look at it. One is by looking at the word propitiation, which is the Greek word halasmos. It means the sacrifice that removes wrath. If the wrath of God is removed for everybody who ever lived, then nobody could be punished. Okay. That means everybody would have to right away when they die, just go to heaven. Okay, now wait. Now, so let me ask a follow-up question. The wrath of God has been removed for all men for the sins that they have committed. But the sin of faithlessness, which we are commanded to believe and to love, has not been removed. Why is that so difficult? What? Where'd you what? get that? Well, first John, first John, you've, no, no, no. you've asked me a question. First John 2, 23 says, this is his commandment, that we believe and that we love as he gave us commandment. So this is what it says. We don't have a bunch of commandments. We don't have the law. 
And Christ paid for the sin on the cross. We all agree with that. So if he paid for the sin, then what is the sin? We know scripture. We know the apostles certainly talked about it. It's the sin of unbelief. The sin of unbelief is all through scripture. So why... I understand that the wrath has been removed for the fornicating and the drunkenness and the lying and the steal. The wrath has been removed for that, but the people in hell aren't being punished for those. They're being punished for their faithlessness and failure to love. Can you respond to that? Is faithlessness a sin? Yeah, absolutely. It's the Did sin. Did pay for all sin? He didn't pay for faithlessness. So you're saying he did not pay for all sin? Uh, that's, okay, then you have a limited atonement. I have, I guess, a limited um, you covering. Have limited atonement. Yeah, you because have a, you, atonement if you don't believe, except for certain sins, if you don't believe, and you fail to love, you're breaking his commandment. Now, you're are you su are you suggesting that we don't have a new commandment? No, I didn't. I just suggest that. Okay, the now if we have a commandment, wait. If we have a commandment, don't we have to follow it? And if we don't, aren't we breaking it? And isn't that yes. sin? Yeah. And, okay, and that's sin. Yeah, to not. Yeah, first okay. chapter four. Sin is lawlessness. Okay, lawlessness. So, we are commanded in the Old Testament to believe. We're supposed to serve the true and living God. So, what you're telling us is that all sins are taken care of except for the sin of unbelief. Can you show me a scripture that says that? Yeah, I think that the one that you quoted last week says that clearly, but you interpret which, it differently. Which verse is that last week? The unforgivable sin. No, that's Matthew 12, 22 through 32, saying that Jesus did the miracles by the power of the devil. No, that's how you interpret that, Matt. That's what it says. No, it, it, that's... that. Yes, they're cast, he's, casting we, out, Matt, he's casting out demons, and Matt, they say, you're doing it by the power of the devil. He Matt, says, blasphemy is the Holy Spirit, I'll be forgiven. Matt, I've taught on it. I, can, I mean, I'm not prepared to teach on it now, but I've taught on it. Okay, you are, Matt, but you're going to teach on it your way. And my, my problem is, is that I read the same scripture. I look at the Greek. I might not be as smart as you, but I read scripture that says, you know, he paid for not only our sins, but the sins for the whole world. And I and believe the word it. world means all nations. It, it's the cosmos Jews, there. It's not nations. It's not the G there. That's how it's used. No, it's if not. You, no, it would, it, would not it, use, it would not use cosmos there, Matt, if how it meant... Know? Because cosmos means something different than the geographical what area. What does world mean? What do you mean, what does world mean? What does it mean? What does the word Well, world it mean? depends. If it uses, two, there's a few different Greek words, and if they're used, it could mean the nations, it could mean the geography, the area. But when cosmos is used, it means the world, the, the heavens and the earth. Am I wrong on that? Words mean what they mean in context. You have to be careful not to do. But wait a second. We're talking about the actual. You you use a lot of words. You say uh, to teslatai. It means this, and it means you use a lot of Greek words. So I'm using your Greek words too. And when the word cosmos is used, it is not speaking of nations, and it's not speaking of an area. The G. It's not speaking. It's speaking of everything, isn't it, Matt? Cosmos. Depends. There's at least five different uses in the world in the Bible. I've done a whole study on it. It's on my website. I How believe that. I believe it. Used, it means every individual or limited area or all nations or secular realm or the planet Earth. Okay. Depending on the context. Okay. You've got to be careful not to insert into First John two two what you want it to say. Okay. I'm not inserting anything. I'm just reading it. Yeah. You and are. I think I'm the insertion is coming. I do believe the insertion is coming from the Calvinist side. I believe the insertion is coming from you. I know what you do. I know mean? you do. And here's the thing. 
But what does it I'm mean? The thing I'm trying to point out, Matt, is that this is, but the, the reason I'm having you on the show, I realize <laughs> that you can defend Calvinism tooth and nail. I know you, you're well versed in it and I know you're skilled. That's not the point. The point is, I'm going to see it differently and other people are gonna see it even differently than you and I. When are we gonna stop dividing each other up on this stuff and say, okay, we'll try our best to understand it, we'll teach, but we're going to embrace people's views as long as they accept the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, that's what I teach. I preached two days ago at Calvary Chapel here in Eagle okay. in Idaho. Okay, I'm a Calvinist, but I preach at Calvary Chapel. Calvinism is not my concern. It's Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was asked to come on the show, and we're talking about Calvinism. You weren't asked to come is, on the show. Yeah, the, right. Whatever. The thing it's is... not whatever. If, well, <laughs> the thing is, if we're going to discuss Calvinism, then it needs to be accurately represented. I think, I think it's accurately represented by you, and by I think me. I... By you, and, yeah. and that's why we, we, we had you on here to accurately present it, but it doesn't mean I'm just going to sit there and go, right, that's right. So I'm giving you the way I see it and the way others who are just as smart yeah. as you see it. Well, let me ask you something here. Yeah. You went to 2 Peter 2.1, denying those who bought him, right? Yeah. Did you know that Peter, 1 Peter and 2 Peter, quotes the Old Testament a great deal? So Peter is obviously referring to the Old Testament a lot. Are you familiar with Deuteronomy 32.6? It says, Do you thus repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Talking about the Jews. Is he not your father who bought you? He has made you and established you. He bought the Jews. But it doesn't mean they were all saved. He purchased them out and got them out of the bondage of Israel. Okay. Peter could very well just be referring back to that allusion okay. all right. to the Old Testament, since he quoted the Old Testament so many times in First and Second Peter. And you know what I loved about that, what you just said, is Peter very well could have. But yes, you, he could have. Okay, he could have. But see, my point, Matt, is we don't know a lot of things. We think we do, but we don't. And so what has to abide? So what does it mean then? Love has to abide. This is the whole purpose for this, in my opinion. Your, your purpose was to explain Calvinism to everybody. My purpose is to show we're going to debate on these things until the cows come home. But in the end, do I love you? Do you love me in Jesus' name? If that yeah, cannot... If that, but see, the Calvinists that I have met do not typically embrace this point of view or this perspective. They want war. They want war. Not you, Matt. No, 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 no. I don't know any Calvinists who want war. You don't know any who want war? No. Well, how have I, how have I been in Christianity half your time and everyone I meet wants war? I don't uh, understand that statement. Wants war? I don't understand. What, what do you mean by war? Okay, all right. No, I'm serious. Uh, no, all right. We won't go down that road. Elliot because in Canada is on line one, Matt. Let's see if we can take this call. All right. All right, Elliot, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, thanks for having me. Yes, thank you, Elliot, for calling. Um, I just wanted to say, uh, I think it's important to note a difference between Elliot. Jesus dying for everybody versus paying for everybody. Okay. Um, noting that difference when you go through scriptures like John 2, 2, uh, up, um, okay, no, it, you can really reconcile it with the idea of limited atonement. I also wanted to uh, uh, point out just in 1 Timothy chapter 4, uh, verse 10 that you brought up, I think that's a great example showing limited atonement. 
And you'll find that um, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, he does the same thing again, separating two, ty two types of elders. One group of elders are practicing and one are not. And the practicing elders are worthy of double honor, not the non-practicing. He also separates widows just before that and slaves after that. Okay. So it's really consistent uh, with that. So it's just one of my thoughts. Um, and it does answer your question. If, if he died only for the elect, well, he didn't. He died for everybody. He just paid only for the elect. So we can say that Jesus died for everybody. And, 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 and so if that's the case, Elliot, what, what's, what's the difference between the two? Well, dying is the offer of salvation. Jesus died for everybody. The offer is available for everybody. Okay. It's only effectual for those who are saved. That's interesting. I haven't thought of it that way. Good point, Elliot. Thank you so much for watching. Fair enough. And if you have a half second, if you could tell me what you mean by systems, I'd just really appreciate it. Because you said systems of thought and things like that. Me? Yeah, you said uh, when you... Oh, I, I think that... I think that when we uh, try to capture and systematize theology, uh, I think we, God laughs. I think that uh, he has made things purposely um, arguable, and I think that uh, he has not given us all the answers, and I think he does that so that we will learn to get along and love each other in the face of theological differences. And so what I'm talking about is when someone comes in and tries to prov provide a system of this is what the system is, no matter what it is, it's going to have problems. That's what I meant by that, Elliot. Well, I would absolutely agree with that. Thank you so much. You're welcome. God bless. God bless. Bye-bye. Is Matt gone? No. Okay, Matt, one last question here. How, uh, this came up before. I'm sorry, but someone wrote this in. How does Matt Slick know that he is the chosen elect besides him just believing he is? All right, let's go over this again. <laughs> Someone who's elect and saved, all right? Someone who's saved is by definition elected. As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. You believe because you're elected to do so. God grants belief to us, Philippians 1.29. The believer affirms spiritual things like the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the death on the cross, the physical resurrection, the atoning sacrifice, justification by faith alone. These are basic spiritual things, essential to the Christian faith, that only people enlightened and redeemed believe and affirm. Since I believe and since I affirm those, it's a sign of regeneration. Since I confess Christ, since I promote Christ, pray to Christ as he's prayed to in the Bible, and am a disciple of his, I do so because God has manifested his election in me, granted me repentance, 2 Timothy 2.25, granted that I believe Philippians 1.29, caused me to be born again, 1 Peter 1.3, and he has chosen me for salvation, 2 Thessalonians 2.13. Okay, okay, Matt, a follow-up question to that is, there are people who uh, you would say that then they're elect, um, and they, they also do all of those things. And many, many, many people do all of those things probably billions of people who call themselves Christian believe, they pray, they have faith, they try to repent. Would you say that everyone is elect who, who does those things that you said you do? It's not an issue of doing. I didn't say do. What happens is, the, see, 1 Corinthians 2.14 says the natural man cannot receive the things of God. Okay. They're foolishness to him. 
The unbeliever does not believe Jesus Christ is God in flesh, died on the cross, rose from the dead for their sins. Okay, so every, believe that kind of a thing. So everyone who says they do believe well, that. I wouldn't say everyone who says they do. I would say everyone who does. So it's not, you said it's not doing, but then you said it's not saying. Which is it? It's the doing of belief. The okay. actual act of believing. Who really okay. does believe it? Someone can recite a sentence. And an atheist can recite the sentence right. that Jesus Christ God. It doesn't mean he's saved. We're talking about those who actually believe it. That's okay. what we're talking about. Okay, and they, they say they only... actually believe like you were saying. That's how you know you're, you're one of the elect, yeah. Matt. Okay, yeah, so many, so many, many people claim that same thing. Are you saying, are they all elect? Is this my question? I don't know. I don't know if all people are elect to make the statement. Well, how come they don't know they're elect, but you do? I don't know if they know they're elect or not. Well, they, some, they, some of them would say, I wonder about my salvation, but you don't. People often wonder about their salvation. Do you? I have before many times. Do the elect? Yeah, I've actually wondered, am I really saved? Am I fooling myself? So the, the elect Never. don't know they're elect then, just like every other Christian. I didn't say the elect don't know they're the elect. You okay. ask me if sometimes I falter, like any human being. Oh, I get that. I, I get that. But if you know you're elect, <laughs> it's pretty hard to falter. I can see saying I'm yes, pre being pretty sinful. I can say I'm failing in my flesh. I can see all that. But to say I'm not elect anymore, that's difficult. I've you never said that. I didn't say you did. What I'm saying is people have a problem with the claim of the elect because they want to know how you know when you really are in the same I boat as every... You. I know you, you have did. the witness of God in your own heart. But they you all... know that God has called you, and you know that you're redeemed by the blood of Christ. And the only ones who can do that are the ones who've been granted that by God, who've been chosen I agree. by God to be given to the Son, who the Son can give to them that life. That's I, how you I, know. And if okay. people want to say, how do you know technically you're elect? You know what? I give them the same answer, remember which way. The ones who hate the idea of God's sovereign election are the ones who continue to ask that question. Okay. Now, now we've gotten to the heart of the matter. So yes, what, you're, what you're saying, the Matt. the sovereignty of God or the sovereignty of man. What you're saying, what Matt, you is, no, I'm not saying that. What you're saying then is, if you don't agree with Calvinist uh, nope. positions, Nope. You're not elect. That's pretty not much what, what you just summarized. I would never say that. You pretty much never. said that. No. Nope. If you don't, do if you keep asking questions like this. No, no, no. Well, what did you say? That. I did not say that. Just because someone's not a Calvinist doesn't mean they're not elect or not Christian. But I believe that those, I said, who resist the idea of God's election and God's sovereignty. Okay. They're the ones who have a problem. Okay. Those I resist, resist I resist sovereignty. it greatly your definition of God's sovereignty, and I resist greatly your definition of atonement, and I regress greatly your definition of perseverance of the saints and of total depravity. I resist it, but I'm gonna, tell you, I'm gonna tell you something, my brother. I resist it to my dying day, but I'm gonna tell you something. I am sold out for the gospel of Jesus Christ and his love, and I am sold out for what he has done for me, and I know it. So what you just said does not hold water in this man's case. It might ah. in others. So, Matt, ah. in my case, yeah. you, what you just said does not hold up. Then what you should not do is try and get me to answer for everybody when you say you're only going to answer for yourself. 
I can only answer for myself, not for everybody. But you're left. representing. I know I'm elect. You understand? Do you know you're elect or not? You understand why people ask that question, don't you? I understand you? why because I have two opinions about that. One, they don't know the biblical revelation, and two, those who openly, consistently resist the idea of God's sovereignty, they're the ones who want their own sovereignty. Okay, well that's. It's just like, and we're out of time. But no, what, I, what, I am, what I am met with here is it's just like Mormonism that says if you question, if you don't really go into it, you are the one with the problem. That's not what I'm saying. It, it, really, Matt, I'm listening to you. I'm trying to listen closely. I'm not oh. here to debate you. I'm listening to you, and you're saying... What are we doing? What? I'm not saying that, Sean. What are you saying, Matt? Look... We are desperately wicked. You have a sinful heart, okay, I have a sinful heart. That's going backward. I just want to know, how am you I... You and I both want to be our own gods. We want to be... In I don't want to be my own god, Matt. That's not true. I don't want to be my own of, god. In, Matt... In the, issue, in the issue of down deep in our hearts, we're the ones. We are. We have sin in our hearts. Oh, that's and true. If we, if we didn't have it, we wouldn't have to repent. I get that, and, and there's so many people who, who repent, and they believe, and they, qu and they question Calvinism to no and end. It's okay to question Calvinism. I don't put Calvinism in the... They question the, the, your the version of the sovereignty of God. Let me put it that way. The sovereignty of God is that He has the right to do with His creation as He desires. He has I understand right that, and He is time. love, and He desires that all would be saved, as Scripture says. And He can also harden people's hearts so they are not saved. Why would God of course, do that? Because he's using them for his good purpose and he will bring them around in the end. But he does that he with all of us. If what? he wants everyone to be saved, why does he send a deluding influence upon them, Second Thessalonians 2? Because he There's needed that. There's more the, to it than just a simple, here's a question, here's a question. There's more to this. It was to fulfill his purposes. It was to fulfill his purposes, Matt. I believe yes. in the sovereignty of God. But in I just Mark don't 4, believe that it's limited and it's, and it's narrow. I believe it, his love, you, it can overcome all these obstacles that Calvin has put up or Calvinism well, tell has. What, tell you what, yeah. I don't believe Calvinism is the essential part of the, the gospel. I don't believe it's the essential part of Christianity. Good. The Trinity is. Uh, that, was a, that was called a bombshell. <laughs> Let's talk about the Trinity. You I know you, I, I know you believe that. Come on. I, I, no, I'm not going to, Matt. You know, on, I'm, I'm dumb, but I'm not that dumb. Uh, <laughs> Come on. You know, uh, it was a good effort. I know but you believe, Matt, I know you believe that the Trinity is. I know you believe that. And I respect you for it. And I respect anybody who accepts the man-made term Trinity. I accept them as my brother in Christ. And that, that's all I'm going to say about it. Fine. Trinity. It's more important than Calvinism. There, there are, but the problem is Calvinism is spreading, and I'm doing this for Mormons, Matt. Mormons come out of Mormonism, and they see Calvinism, ism, 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 and it's pushed down their throat, and they buy it, and then they find out, and they well, wonder. Come on, Matt. I'm not going to. No, I don't know. I don't, seriously, I don't know if anybody pushed Well, you've it. pushed it pretty strongly, actually. On the show. You have you a Calvinist website. You have a Calvinist website. Yeah, Most theological schools are Calvinist today. Reformed is, is coming out there, and I just think that it's a disservice to people who are searching for truth. Look at, we are way over time, Matt. We're way over. Way over. You've done an admirable job. I appreciate it. Let's keep going with this discussion. Next week, we're going to get to, I guess I go first, and it's going to be the irresistible grace, and then we're going to get to perseverance of the saints. God bless you. We'll see you next week here in Heart of the Matter.
We'll see you. Thanks, Matt. Okay. I'm on a ride, going nowhere. I am an existential cowboy on the wind, and I won't be coming out. I'm going in. This man's awake. The storms are rising. The dawn's awaiting till a hundred monkeys know. And I can feel the 